Hello, friends, and welcome to Silo Busting. I'm your host, Kenji Ross, a strategist at EPAM Continuum. Mastering the cloud isn't something that can be done with one training course or with a single certification, and it certainly can't be explained in just one episode of Silo Busting. So today we're back to cover the cloud with the second and final part of our conversation. As you'll recall, last week we talked about the difficulties in keeping up with the fast pace of cloud tech, the benefits of being able to fail and learn quickly, and the importance of evangelizing the cloud throughout an organization. In this chat, we'll take that a step farther, stressing an organizational culture of curiosity, how this is all really more about people than tech, and how, as in much of our work, there are three sides to this puzzle, business, technology, and experience. As in last week's episode, our guests include Jim Wilt, architect of digital strategy and technology innovation at a Fortune 100 retailer, Norm Judah, EPAM advisory board member, and Miha Kral, EPAM's VP of cloud strategy. Let's listen in. How do you make that growth and learning plan, both for engineers, for executives, for the whole enterprise, to actually be on the right path? Jim? So I want to take that on because, um, yeah, and just a comment about what Norm said about um, the health industry. There's, There's a lot of challenge on the IT side because of high trust and HIPAA to where um, if you're partnering, who's going to take on the accountability and responsibility to uh, be compliant in the high trust HIPAA uh, regulatory um, guidance. And um, if you're going to take it on yourself, there's that's a huge learning curve. And he said at the beginning, there are a lot more specialization needs with the cloud today than there ever were before. There is your prime example is healthcare. These specializations, you really need a security specialist in the healthcare industry if you're gonna get into that. You can't do it on your own. And even if you're gonna trust someone to do it on your behalf, you still need to have that skill set. So I just wanna emphasize the importance on that to get to your point, then how do we get our skills up to speed? I've seen, I I, I guess I wanna start out with I failed at it a lot. I've, I, I'm an expert at failing at getting resources up to speed. Um, and, and the reason I say that is, you know, logically, I've tried to do it the right way. I've tried to say, well, we're going to bring in certification. We're going to bring in uh, training programs. We're going to go through immersion training. And um, all of that gets you up a little bit, but not a lot. But where I have seen tremendous success in, in organizations where I've done this is I call it SME pairing. Um, and this is where basically you bring in subject matter experts that don't do it for you. They do it with you. So I actually would pair the, a SME expert with one of my engineers or architects or security persons and have them work together to deliver a common goal. And sometimes you can use internal people to help others within the organization. Other times you're bringing external people because you don't have that expertise yet within your organization. And the way you build the the payment scale, so to speak, is on your team delivering, not the people you bring in delivering. And the, the, the rate at which you increase expertise at that level is, is tenfold greater than, uh, I'm going to say, an encompassing program of 
certification and training, they're all necessary. They're all valuable. But the bigger bang for the buck has come in this me pairing side to where one-on-one, you know, four elbows, one keyboard, you're putting things together and that scales because that can then spread to helping others. And in the process of helping others, you're scaling what I'm going to say team dynamics. And so that's just been something that I really harvest as the greatest learning in resource management that I've had in my career is that one-on-one learning for a lot of your engineering skills is probably the best way to get uh, a, a greater return. My question, though, back to you and Norm, is how do we do that at the executive leadership level? What, what have you guys seen to make that happen, I'm going to say, in changing, if you will, the way we think as executives? So, I, I, Jim, I, I, good point there. And I think that there's... Um, <laughs> Just to talk about the CTO role again, I think it's incredibly important that the CTO play a role at that management table and has to be the gateway to these um, capabilities being recognized and then developed. Um, Very rarely is um, someone of that capability at the table making business decisions. And so I think uh, part of the changing role of the CTO in the organization is to carry that capability and champion it through the organization both for their own audience in the technical community, but just as important through the business and uh, the leadership side. I do think, though, that the notion of readiness and training, um, it, yeah, I worry a little bit about when somebody gets a gold star where they go and attend a course, write their multiple choice exam, and at the end of it get a gold star, and they're now, quote, a master of something. Um, that just means that you have the ability to take a multiple you know, quiz test and actually pass it. Um, I'm much more interested in the demonstrated capability of what you can actually do with it. And so there's one level of being informed, which is I know that Kubernetes actually exists. Do I know why it exists, how to use it, how not to use it, the differences between the various implementations, when it becomes portable and when it doesn't, and what the great architectures are that would utilize it and when you wouldn't use it as opposed to something else? A lot of that comes from what I'll call, for lack of a better term, wisdom. And it's very hard to encapsulate that wisdom in a multiple choice quiz. And so I think that there's a significant role to be played by the technology leaders. So not necessarily the CTO, but the leaders to be able to actually, um, as a group, look at those capabilities and orchestrate them together to help to grow the breadth of the capability, both on the technology side, but also on that business end of it. And finding the right champions in the business side of it, I think, is is incredibly important. And, you know, even if, if you just look, for example, inside of the CFO's world and the way that technology has changed the CFO's business from how they do budgets and forecasting, um, how you do look at sales and sales projections and quota allocations, AI has changed that completely. And if I'm the VP of sales setting those quotas, if I don't understand how that is being put together, um, it actually puts me at a deficit when related back to my competitors. And so I think part of the challenge is actually just being able to articulate the nature of the problem and the question that's there and the benefits that come out of it. But if I'm the VP of sales and I don't understand how AI can actually help me in those scenarios, that gives me as a real deficit. That puts me at a real deficit compared to the other players in the market. 
And so I think you have to outline both of those uh, in both of those centers of gravity between the business and the technology and carry that forward. But it's not just have you read the manual. There's a lot more to it than that. I, I, I totally agree. And I, I really like the, the effect that um, I, I think essentially you're saying you can't teach wisdom. You can grow wisdom, but you can't yep. teach wisdom. And I agree with that. And I, I do think that, you know, from the gold star perspective or the soccer trophy that we hand out, that gets you on a common vocabulary in the technology. And that's as far as we should ever expect that to take you. But the actual practice and immersion, I, I think you're spot on. So in, in, in that aspect of it, how, how do you, how do you in your past, and I, I have seen how you do it, but I'm just asking it more for the audience, if you will, how have you used um, growing wisdom as a practice when you were CTO, you know, when I was working under you, this is something that I think is very important for people to hear. Um, it's, it's the wisdom of wisdom. Um, sorry. Uh, <laughs> one of the things that we used to do, um, we, we ran an event twice a year, a large event with 10,000 people. And in that event, uh, Jim Miha, myself, and many others would run a series of sessions. One of them was called So You Want to Be a CTO, um, which uh, was mostly a Q&A with some context about um, the role, the people, and, and how you actually grow it. But one of the key measures of wisdom is your ability to share the wisdom that you've got and update the wisdom that you have. And so it's actually a bi-directional thing about how you actually communicate it out, but then how you actually listen to everybody around you, um, which essentially comes from the ability to be inquisitive about what's there. And so one of the core dimensions of wisdom is how inquisitive are you um, in terms of what's there and what's not there. And unfortunately, it takes years of practice and wisdom to understand that you don't know everything um, and that there's a lot to learn, and that's part of the wisdom of wisdom. But sharing it, um, you know, in different ways with different people is incredibly important. In fact, it's that third pillar of the CTO strategy, which is about growing technical people and identifying what we call technical leaders. Um, what is it? You know, a leader is somebody who gets success through others. It's not about what they do, but what it's about what other people do. And that's a very complicated issue for technical experts because there are many technical experts who believe that just because I'm the best XML programmer in the world means I'm a leader. No, it just means you're a really, really good developer and you maybe can do some interesting things. But how you bring other people with you um, and how you actually grow their capability becomes a measure of your success. And so Establishing these criteria into the organizational culture about growing leaders is incredibly important. And one of the things that I worry about dramatically in the gig economy is the gig economy is providing no opportunity to grow leaders. It's providing opportunity for people to do work in an ad hoc way, work for who they want, when they want, and as much as they like. But it doesn't address this notion of leadership of which wisdom is a core part of it is the ability to communicate to others the things that you've learned. And I think that the gig economy is actually going to have a huge impact on our ability to grow those people who become essential to the lifeline of the company. Yeah. I, mean, I was going to say that this is the whole talk about growing leadership and fostering wisdom is uh, a, 
I'm going to say a gap, if you will, in organizations, um, because we've been focused so much on uh, getting the, the tooling and the, the resources up to speed. We've not figured out yet what's the way to foster that. I like what you said. Uh, and, and by the way, you've always been in the center of creating a culture of curiosity and, yeah. and, and fostering that. And that's really been very beneficial. And then those that, that take on that and then um, bring on resources, if you will, that are smarter than them, which is the best way to hire, right? Yep. To execute on that, you're right. Uh, a, a good developer, a C-sharp developer, F-sharp developer, uh, Java developer, doesn't make them a leader, um, but you need to recognize ones that have the skills and then you need to start moving and directing them to where they're leading others in that way. I think a lot of the the SMEAT pairing has helped in the organization when I do it within the organization of identifying those that like to do it with others. But, uh, and Miha, you wanted to get a, a word in, I apologize. Um, just a, one last question, Norm, on, on this aspect. On, on that culture of curiosity and, and things along those lines, what is the applicability, if you will, of leaders having the technical skills um, to what level and where does apathy make them, I'm going to say, uh, less relevant to the community that they serve? It's <laughs> a great question. Um, so there's, I think part of the assertion then is that there needs to be within the organizational structure very senior members who actually fit into this category. So um, the, it was one of the great benefits of the work that we did at Microsoft, which was the ability to grow individual contributors into those technical leaders. And maybe they do have a handful of people working for them, but they probably don't manage an organization of hundreds or thousands of people. And having them as being vice presidents with the appropriate uh, both compensation and business commitment around it. Um, and that's hard for some companies to ingest, which was why should I have this techie guy who actually is being compensated the same as the VP of sales or the VP of marketing. But the first thing in the organization is to recognize the competency that's required, particularly in the future. You know, we haven't said this. So I think I need to say it now, which is that every company Every company is either a cloud company today or they're on a journey to become a cloud company or they're becoming irrelevant. Um, and in some way or another, every company in some way or another is actually going to be participating in the cloud. And in that recognition comes the organizational commitment. We talked about you know, corporate competency, but it's not only the competency, it's the commitment to actually carry that and carry that broadly through the organization as the roles that those people should play. It does actually put the onus on the so-called technical leaders to actually understand the business as well. So you, you know, the higher you are in the organization, you actually have a part of the organization commitment to growth um, and uh, sustaining the business. And therefore, you need to desperately understand the business as well. So it's not only that the business capability needs, the, the business leaders actually need to understand the technology, the vice versa is true as well to be able to build the right level of, of partnership and sponsorship that needs to go through the organization. I think that you will find that the, the people who cross over are the ones who start to accelerate. Um, and we've seen you know, the introduction of IoT and sort of measures at the edge um, start to create the opportunity for people to really understand more deeply the way 
their products and services are being consumed um, and then understand the patterns of usage and how to make a product better. And if you don't understand that simple concept as a company about measurement and telemetry and then action against that, again, you're going to be you know, lagging behind the, the leaders in the marketplace. And so I think you have this onus of both sides of understanding along both of those axes, the nature of the business and creating the right roles in the organization that support it. What are the core trades then? That um, So it's kind of a two-part question for both of you. What are the core mastery trades that you would observe and say, well, this enterprise, this company is doing it right versus not? And who are good examples that you would be able to name that are actually doing it right this year or today? Uh, interesting. Um, the people who are doing it right, um, there probably are many large organizations that are navigating through their history into uh, being a different world. Uh, the change of retail and what's happened in retail just couldn't be possible um, without this sort of mastery supply chain as well. Healthcare, you see, uh, without naming companies, you actually see dramatic changes of delivery of healthcare being leveraged again. The The companies that are most leveraging it are the newer companies that are born in the cloud because it just is the way they work. Um, and it's inherently there in their competency and capabilities. And so depending on the size and the history of the company, we're seeing different organizations do it and do it in different ways. Um, there's, to me, the, the, the measure, you know, how, what are the three questions you could ask to determine if a company is actually on the right path? And one of the first questions I would ask is, what is the investment strategy against building this competency? Not necessarily do you believe in it, because if you don't believe in it, we're not having a null discussion. But how do you perceive your investment and what is the measures of success of your investment? And the answers to that question actually will give you great insight into that company and their understanding of the problem and trying to address it. There are probably you know, companies who vary across that, but if you're not investing in it, it's not going to happen. So that, to me, would be the biggest question is how does that happen? And from there, you can then decay down. Uh, you, you can get down into sort of different aspects. But if you're not investing, uh, back to the earlier statement that we said, you're not getting better, in which case, as Jim said, you're getting worse. Yeah, and to, to, to your point, there are organizations out there that um, we've studied to, to, to um, identify better ways of organizing teams, better ways of, of managing teams. The, the crux of it is at the time that the podcasts come out about them or the videos that they share about themselves and the place where your organization is, there's a gap there. And so if you actually build it, to where they, you know, you take five years, two years, one year to build it to where the company you're studying is, you're building it to their past, not to where they've moved. And that enigma that Norm brought up earlier, it's continually changing and it's changing at a faster pace. There is no stake in the ground. And that's that makes it difficult. So, you know, the question I would rephrase is, is like, you know, today, who are you looking at today? Kind of a thing because 
they may not move as fast as you need to move, or they may be moving so fast you can't keep up with them. But there's there's always the comparisons that you hear when you're talking to your engineers. You know, such and such does it this way, such and such does it that way. And to your engineers, those organizations have infinite money and infinite resources, so stop comparing me to them. I think it's better to look at it as for who we are, for what we're doing, you know, how do we push ourselves against the limits, if you will, of our own to move beyond those limits? And one of the things I'm learning is I have not in the past been asking enough of my peers and my resources because I find that when I ask a little more of them or sometimes a lot more of them, I'm amazed at how much they can deliver. And the mistake wasn't, the mistake was assuming that it would be too much to ask them, right? Let them tell you when it's too much to ask them and always push the limits. So Norm talked about the, the culture of curiosity. I, I also think you need to talk about, um, you know, asking permission to go beyond the limits from your resources and peers and even uh, superiors to say, are we asking enough of ourselves? And if we're not, how do we ask more of ourselves? And, and some of that takes, it's a, to, Norma's saying about how to become a CTO, is you need to start changing the way you look at your organization and, as, and yourself from the place of where you are to stepping away and looking at the place where you want to be. What is it, Wayne Gretzky? He skates to where the puck is going, not to where the other skaters are going. And I think that that's, that's kind of the insight that you need to have about the, the culture and about your business's business, what business are they in, to be able to do that. Not everybody can do that, but those that can do that, let them do that and let them lead that way. I don't think, I, I think we avoided your question quite well, Miha. <laughs> yes, indeed. So if I rephrase my question, what I was really trying to get out is how do you measure that? How do you measure success? How do you, you know, if you would be able to assess and quantify and measure organization A versus B or maybe a person A versus B, how do you define who is actually closer to that cloud mastery, the cloud native uh, mentality approach and results? So I think there's, an, there's, there's sort of multiple dimensions to that, one of which is, you know, do you have the right accreditations and certifications and collection of gold stars and trophies on your countertop that makes you look good? That's just interesting, but not telling, but it's easy to measure. And so unfortunately, most companies use that. Are you accredited? Do you certify? Do you have platinum level, which is better than gold level, and therefore you're good? There are interesting things for me that look at what is the consequence of mastery. So what what has happened as a result um, of that? And there are some interesting pieces that come from that. So for here's some of the questions I would ask, which was if I go back to my technical strategy sort of thread from earlier, I'll drill into those companies and say, so tell me, what is your technical strategy? And the, the answers that I get are super fascinating because some people would say, my technical strategy is Azure or my technical strategy is AWS or Google Cloud or whatever it is. And that's not a technical strategy. That's actually abrogating your responsibility completely to somebody else, which is a strategy, not a very good one, but it actually is a strategy. And technical strategies mean investment, and you can only invest in a handful of big bets because investments in write, involve writing checks. And so 
what is it that you see from a technology perspective that creates a strategy? So a consequence of mastery is actually a clearly articulated technical strategy um, on which we actually land up building and running a series um, of systems in a, in a fairly broad way. So the measure of mastery, I think, is both the the sort of tactical measure of things, but more interesting enough, the consequences of the mastery um, that lead to real business decisions. Um, there, there is a um, there's an interesting thread around um, as a, one of these conse- consequential things, which is around the durability of applications which is, um, we alluded to this a little earlier, the half-life of an application. How long does this application last? And it's kind of funny because we laugh about COBOL and the mainframe, but there's an awful lot of banks and retail companies, et cetera, still running COBOL mainframe applications that they've been running for 30, 40, 50 years. And if I ask you how many cloud applications that do you know that have been running for five or 10 years, it's not that many. And so... This, do you actually understand the durability of the applications that you're building? So if you're building an application that's to last six months, then you make a series of decisions from there. If you build the application that you believe should be more durable and should last one year, five years, or 10 years, have you made the right set of decisions in order to do that? And so the telltale measures are the consequence of the mastery, not necessarily the mastery itself. The measure of mastery you know, and in terms of do you have the right level of skills and exposure, those are a series of tick marks that you can actually go through and you can check it. And by the way, you need to check it every six months because otherwise you're going to be out of date. Um, but I actually think the real value is the consequence of that and what you've done with that competency. So I want to I want to hop on that. I, that's my next T-shirt, Consequence of Mastery. I... Um, I want to give you a, a, a material example about what, what Norm just described. With um, I've got about 30 teams that I've been working with in the last year, getting them to go from uh, legacy monolith applications that are old enough to drink and vote, as we say, to uh, cloud native um, in, in different clouds. And how do you know you've attained mastery? Well, they've got to get over the hump of the learning curve, the the different ways of working, new ways of working, and they get to execution. They're running micro experiments. They're doing things completely different than they've ever done. And then, and then they get it. And they've gone now from 17 sprints to get to production to getting to production in two sprints. And there's one metric right there, um, time to market. The next metric I would say is the number of products I can deliver with a given team in a year has gone from two to possibly a dozen, right? There's another metric. But here's the one that I think is the best metric, and it it just echoes what um, I've never used the consequence of mastery before, but here's my measure of the consequence of mastery is when I've seen these teams, I've worked with their senior directors, and the senior directors have transformed from I don't know if we can do this. I want to try. I know it's the right way to do it. They've now become the biggest zealots of cloud and the way to do it. So one of the greatest ways, how am I doing at the the consequence of mastery? How many zealots have I created in the past year at the senior director level? And you know what? It is rewarding. When you get one that transforms to where they become the biggest mouthpiece for the concepts that you're trying to promote and you don't need to promote it anymore because 
they're louder than you are and they're getting greater traction, there is a, a great measure, if you will, on the actual consequence of mastery come to fruition. It's, it's, just, it's just an elation. It's just awesome to see them take over and then they inspire others to do so. So if I ask each of you for a parking thought, like one single tweet length um, idea that anyone striving for cloud mastery should keep in their head. Mm. It's more than a tweet, I'm sorry, but um, to be, for any enterprise to be competitive today, Cloud mastery across technology in the business is a corporate core competency. I think I, I think I overtweeted. <laughs> I, I do like that. That's a good one. Um, I like that one a lot. I, I would also say that um, you know the theme has been: if you're not moving forward, you're dead. And <laughs> I, I guess that's probably. What I would put you—you you can't sit on your laurels. Yeah, you've got to continue to push that mastery. You've got to push that mastery limit. So if you're not moving forward, you're dead. This has been Silo Busting, a podcast from EPAM Continuum. EPAM Continuum integrates business experience and technology consulting, focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. Why do we do this? Because real opportunities aren't siloed. Thanks again to Jim Wilt. Norm Judah, and Miha Kral for another great conversation. Cheers to Kip Palalis, our sound engineer extraordinaire, for getting this episode recorded. Applause to Ken Gordon, our producer, for all of his behind-the-scenes work. I'm your host, Kenji Ross. <laughs>